Now we're coming tonight to uh, Romans chapter 3 and the first eight verses of uh, the chapter. And uh, I'll be the first to acknowledge that this is not an easy uh, section. Uh, it's quite uh, an involved argument that Paul makes here. And perhaps some of the objections that uh, he is uh, encountering might seem a little bit uh, strange, unusual to us. We're going to go through it uh, carefully and uh, simply. And one of the things I think that as Christians we can learn uh, from this section is Paul's methodology. Paul saw it as important to answer the objections that people actually have. Now, it seems to be from what Paul is saying that these are actually things that were being said against him. He was being misrepresented. People were twisting his teaching uh, to represent him as somebody who was actually encouraging sin. And so Paul painstakingly, patiently, deals with the objections that are being raised uh, to uh, his, his main plank of the argument, which is that all of us equally need to have righteousness outside ourselves. Now, we can learn from that, can't we? Because uh, I trust that uh, reasonably frequently we are having gospel conversations with people who are not Christians. And in those conversations that we have, we will want to give proper weight to the difficulties that they have. There's no point in steamrolling over someone in order to get the message across. We need to hear the, the difficulties, the, the questions, the objections that they're raising. And no matter how, how silly or flippant they may seem to us, we need to give them a, a proper consideration and try to work out uh, the problems that people have. And so that's one thing that we can learn from uh, this, this passage, which uh, does seem rather uh, dense and, and difficult. Sometimes this is the kind of conversation that we're going to have with people uh, who are struggling with Christianity, and we need to give them time. We need to show them consideration as we deal with their objections to the faith once delivered to the saints. Well, the background, of course, is that Paul has been demolishing arguments. Remember, uh, our, our picture is of the, the house, which is a refuge for uh, those who want to escape the implications of the gospel, that all need a righteousness from God. And in this house, there are people who are uh, claiming that... Uh, they are exceptions to the rule. No, people always think that they are exceptions to the rule. And so we have the pagan uh, in the Greek or Roman world who is an exception to the rule. Why is he an exception to the rule? Well, he doesn't have a Bible. Therefore, how can he be accountable before God? And Paul has shown that even the person who doesn't have the special revelation of God has the Word of God written on his heart and is surrounded by this enormous revelational pressure this word that is spoken by the, the heavens that are continually declaring the glory of God. And so he is accountable for what he knows. And then there was the other objection that said, well, you know, Paul, you're saying that the pagan is, is, uh, is living such a, a lurid, a 
immortal lifestyle, but we're not all like that, you know. Some of us are pretty upright. You can be good without being religious. Where have we heard that before? And then Paul again brings out the, the wrecking bar and takes the wrecking bar to uh, the argument of the moralist and says, well, you may claim to be good living. Do you actually live up to your own standards? The standards that you set up for yourself apart from the law? No, of course you don't. And then uh, there is the Jew. And he is the last of the ob- objectors. And the, the Jew is, is claiming, first of all, that, that he is in a special place before God because uh, he is one of the chosen people. And he's been given the law. Uh, God has made a covenant with him. Therefore, he must be an exception. Surely God has given him all these things that he doesn't need to have a, a righteousness in addition to that from God. And Paul again shows that although he has the privilege of, of the law, the commandments that he, he purports to stand for are commandments which he continually breaks himself. He stands condemned as a lawbreaker. And even circumcision, which was the badge of being a Jew, only avails if the reality of a living faith, which is what circumcision was pointing towards, is present there also. So, we have this picture of the, the, the house of excuses raised to the ground by Paul's demolition company. And at last, there's nothing left standing until, and all is quiet, until we hear uh, under the rubble this uh, voice, this last voice of objection uh, raised. And it's a voice that is complaining that Paul's argument would make God unfaithful. Because God, according to the Old Testament, had given privileges to the Jewish people. And Paul seems to be doing away with these. And so the question is, do Jews have an advantage? Do Jews have an edge? From a a, a purely secular point of view, you you look at the, the track record of Jewish people in all kinds of disciplines, and you you'd have to say they seem to have an edge. They are an extraordinary people. Uh, There are umpteen uh, spheres in which Jewish people excel. I was thinking about the the, the sphere of popular music. You know, we could all list off Jewish people that are well-known as musicians or singers. Barbara Streisand, Carole King, uh, Al Joplin, Neil Diamond, Bob Dylan, all of these people, Jewish backgrounds, Paul Simon. Uh, think of uh, the spheres of technology, think of, of uh, my own interest, think of agricultural technology. The Jews have been remarkable in the progress that they have made, a small nation, making huge strides, being in the forefront of, of uh, agricultural irrigation, crop breeding, and so on. Are amazing people. The Jews have the edge when it comes to the faith. Do they have an edge in salvation? And the problem arises, and we, 
part of the part of our responsibility as Christians is to try and feel the problem that people raise. You know, when they raise objections, to try and enter into it. And to try and feel the objection. It seems as though Paul is erasing any distinction between Jews and non-Jews. Uh, in the first case, uh, he has said that they are the Jew that is is equally guilty with all humanity. Uh, he has he has said that there is no difference. Uh, uh, verse twelve of chapter two: All who sin apart from the law will will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law, for it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law. Verse 11, God does not show favoritism. And then he goes on to define a Jew in a way that seems to be not dependent upon your ethnic background or your religious background. Verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. No, verse 29, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. See, so there is this new definition of what the true Jew is, and it doesn't depend on your ethnic background. It doesn't depend on your religious tradition. It's what is in the heart that makes you a true Jew. And so this, this last whimper of objection from the rubble of the demolished house is saying, but surely there's an advantage because God made a covenant with the people. There has to be an advantage and you've erased all distinctions, Paul, in your doctrine. And so there are four objections raised. First of all, uh, Paul uh, is robbing the Jews of any advantage when it seems the Old Testament has given privilege to the Jews and that that privilege has to be an advantage. Uh, there's the objection that this would make God unfaithful because the Jews had a covenant protection. Paul is saying they haven't. Paul is going to defend God's faithfulness. But then uh, when Paul indicates that God's faithfulness is simply highlighted by the fact that uh, some have proven unfaithful. These people are going to object again, well, how can God uh, judge? He can't judge if unfaithfulness from the Jew simply shows God to be more faithful. Uh, then he won't condemn anyone, surely, uh, if, if sin is simply showing up God to be more glorious. And then there's a Final and the extreme objection, uh, and Paul deals with this very robustly, and that is that the logic of Paul's argument, or the way that the subjector has, has uh, unwoven it, would be that we, uh, we sin in order that good may come about. Well, as I said, it's not a straightforward section I'm a simple person, and so we're going to look at it under simple headings. And these are, first of all, a sound religious upbringing always does bring an advantage, even when it doesn't lead on to salvation. A sound religious upbringing, such as these Jews had, does bring an advantage, even if that doesn't lead on to salvation. First point. 
Secondly, God remains faithful and just even when people fail to benefit from their advantages. God remains faithful and just. And then, finally, true Christians will never seek a reason to sin, but will always produce good fruit, the fruit that accompanies faith. So the first point is that a sound religious upbringing always confers an advantage, even if it doesn't if it doesn't automatically lead on to salvation. So, remember, the, the objector is this, this last one. What advantage? What advantage is there in being a Jew? If all that you have said, Paul, is true, and that Jews are equally accountable with the Gentiles before God, and if a, if a Jew in any case is simply uh, not somebody who's been circumcised or has has had a, a Jewish background, but somebody who's a Jew in the heart, what advantage do the, the ancient people of God, the Israel uh, Israelites, have? We're all in the same boat as people who have no Jewish background uh, because their salvation depends on trusting for righteousness. Uh, then what's the point of all that God gave to his ancient people, Israel. What's the point of having uh, the law and circumcision and all these things? Now, you hear a kind of similar objections today to religious activities which are done and where it seems that they're pointless because not everyone comes to faith. Uh, just to give an example, people may say, what is the point in having Christian assemblies in schools when we're no longer a Christian country? Uh, they'll only fool the young people into thinking that they're safe because they have the Bible read and prayer said. Or what's the point in baptism when people who have been baptized often fall away and sometimes people who never end up being baptized are saved? What's the point in baptism? And so some have argued that there's no point in attending church or reading the Bible if you're not a Christian. There's no point in insisting that young people uh, in the family go to church because it doesn't make them any better than young people who don't go to church. See, there's a kind of twisted logic there. Of course, they're not better than people who don't go to church. And in response to whether the Jews had an advantage from all that God had given them, by way of the, uh, the law uh, and his, his prophetic word and the temple ritual and the circumcision and so on, Paul's response is, what's advantage? Much advantage. Much in every way. Now, in chapter 9, he's going to go over the same kind of ground, but he's going to argue in much greater detail, and he's going to list off a whole lot of advantages that there will be eight privileges, the adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, that's uh, Israel's founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and the fact that it was into the Jewish people that Christ the Messiah was born. He says, these are tremendous advantages. Don't say the Jews have no advantages. They are of great value. But 
the one advantage which he mentions here is that they were given the scriptures. They were given the scriptures. This is the great advantage. Much in every way, first of all, or it could also be translated chiefly, chiefly they have been entrusted with the very words of God. My friend, don't say the Jews had no advantage. They were entrusted with the very words of God. This is the great privilege to have the word of God. God has spoken to the Jewish people through the prophets, and this revelation had been written down, and they had been taught in the word, and from childhood they had been instructed in the scriptures. Paul in the New Testament will will remind Timothy that uh, he uh, knew the scriptures uh, he was taught the scriptures by his grandmother and his, and his, and his mother. Uh, Calvin said of, of Timothy that he imbibed the word of God with his mother's milk. It was a great privilege to have the word of God. Now, if Paul would be the first to admit that reading and even memorizing the Old Testament didn't do many of the Jews lasting good. Um, They never went past a formal reading of the Bible. They never went past a formal and outward religion, but some did. It was a huge advantage to have the Word of God. And, to update it, it's a huge privilege to uh, for anyone to grow up in a Christian home where the Bible is read, to be taken to public worship where the Bible is read and expounded, to sing the hymns and the psalms, and to learn theology uh, through things like the Catechism and Christian books. It is a huge privilege. Now, why is that, is that an advantage when uh, it doesn't automatically bring someone to salvation? Well, and this will sound very, very minimalist, and it is in a sense. The very fact that someone uh, is brought up with the word will act as a, a restraint on their sinfulness. The reformers saw a third use of the law, which was uh, the, the use of, uh, in restraining sin. And if we have a familiarity with the Word of God, then the conscience will be sensitized so that people uh, will sin to a lesser degree than those who have these privileges. Now, the unsaved churchgoer Bible reader is unable to save himself, clearly. We need the Holy Spirit to renew a person. But we will be judged on the day of judgment according to works, and those that sin uh, less will be judged less severely. And so there is this sense in which the restraint that the Word brings is a blessing. Now, we admit that's a minimal benefit. But of much more significance is the fact that it's through the hearing of the word that people are saved. That is the ordinarily the way that people are brought to Jesus. Faith comes through hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It's God's way 
to bring people to saving faith through the Bible. When the Bible is unleashed, when it's read and explained, God is at work. It is powerful. And therefore, to have Christian assemblies in school where the Bible is read and where young people grow up to hear about God and creation and sin and redemption and the return of Christ, that is an immense privilege and we should never despise that privilege. And to come into the the house of God and to hear the word of God is an immense privilege. You're far more likely to be saved spending your time in, in a church than in bars and nightclubs. It's through the hearing of the word that people are saved. And on the other side of the coin, when these pillars are removed, then great damage is done. You know, the way the secularists want to, to remove all, uh, all privilege from the Christian faith. They would want to, to ban all uh, use of the Bible and prayer and so on from school if they got their way. Well, we should never say that that would be okay because these are secular institutions. It would be a grievous loss to people not to hear the Word of God. Now, it's worth at this point uh, just pointing out what, the, what Paul says in relation to the Word and how, the, how he describes the Word. Uh, he refers to them as the very words of God. And the word in the Greek is, is logia, and it's used very sparingly in the New Testament. There's only three instances of it, and it's used in the sense of, of, a, of an oracle. So the King James Version uses the term oracle. And it has uh, the significance of saying that all of the words of God, all of the scriptures, rather, are the words of God. It's identifying the scriptures with the words of God. This is what we're saying to the children this morning. I'm sure they got it as well. That no matter who the authors of the individual books of our Bibles are, the author behind the author is God. They're his words. Whether it's John writing his gospel letters and revelation, whether it's Samuel, whether it's Moses, God is speaking. The oracles of God. That's a lovely expression, isn't it? The oracles of God. It's what Paul meant in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he said, all scripture is God-breathed. He has exhaled the Bible. It has its origin in him. So the words of the Bible bear, if we can use this expression reverently, uh, bear the DNA of God. They bear his nature, which is truth. For it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore his words are true. And as we're saying this morning, uh, it doesn't mean that the Bible was dictated uh, so that uh, all of the, the different parts of the Bible are seamlessly of the same personality. No, in God's sovereignty, uh, he uses real people and real personalities, uh, real backgrounds, real writing styles to communicate exactly his desired truth. 
And that means that in the Bible we have the most precious possession in the world. They have been entrusted with the oracles of God. And you'll know that at the, at the coronation of the Queen, uh, there was this point where uh, the Bible was given uh, to the Queen. The Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Assembly were involved uh, at this point in the coronation service. And the, the Archbishop presented the Queen with a Bible saying, uh, Our Gracious Majesty, to keep Your Majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. And then the moderator of the Church of Scotland added, Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. God is speaking through his word. And through hearing and responding to the Bible, we are born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The lively oracles of God. So the Bible is used in our coming to faith, and it is used in our growth as Christians, as we are continually convicted of our sin, turn from it, and learn the will of God through the Bible. It is the most precious thing that men and women, young people, can possess. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Much value in every way. Now, the second point is, God remains faithful, even although people don't benefit from their advantage, or don't avail themselves of their advantage, or prove unfaithful themselves. God remains faithful. The, the implication uh, in, in Paul's objector is that uh, unless the, the covenant meant that, that all Israel was saved, and some believe that simply by virtue of being a Jew you, you were saved, unless that was the case, then God had failed. But God's covenant was always uh, to bring salvation through faith in a Messiah, a promised Messiah. Now, the fact that, that Israel, largely, the majority of Israel, had not put their trust in uh, that Messiah, either as he was promised or as he came in fulfillment, the fact that the majority didn't trust them uh, doesn't mean that God has been unfaithful in his covenant commitment to Israel. And Paul brings two arguments again in verse 4 against the idea that we could ever think of God being unfaithful to his promises. First of all, he says, it's actually impossible for God to be unfaithful. Let God be found true, he says, and every man a liar. God's faithfulness is not a matter of majority. It's not a case of, of how many think God is true. Let's take a vote in it. Or how many uh, actually respond to the preaching of the gospel. If it's a majority, then God must be true. If not, not. Let every man be a liar and let God still be true. He remains true. 
There was a remnant, a remnant of Israel that did believe, who were under the covenant. God is faithful. Paul's going to tell us in Romans 9 to 11 that there is going to be a future in gathering of the Jewish people. His purposes with the Jews aren't over. That's future. At the moment, he's simply saying, uh, let God be true and every man a liar. And then he quotes Psalm 51, verse 4. Now, the, of course, the context of the psalm is uh, the man of the covenant, David himself. And David, he has he's thrown the book out. He's, he's broken virtually all the commandments, principally murder and adultery. And this, this man of God, this man who, who owned the covenant, a covenant member of, of, of Israel, acknowledges the rightfulness of God in punishing him. Lord, uh, he's saying, I, I've received your discipline in order that when you speak, you may be justified. I acknowledge, he's saying, that I am receiving what I deserve. Your punishment of me is justified. Even David recognized that he had been unfaithful to the, the covenant. The covenant comes with a commitment to obey the Lord. And he is acknowledging that he is receiving this punishment from God, the, the, the death of the son that had been born to him, as a rightful punishment, as a covenant breaker. See, there's two sides of God's covenant. Uh, covenant faithfulness will bring us blessing. Covenant uh, unfaithfulness uh, will bring uh, God's wrath. But either way, God is faithful, always faithful. Covenant sign brings privileges, but it brings responsibilities. But God remains true to his covenant. So that's the second point. And then the last point, uh, and with the last point, we're, we're looking at some of the more abstruse uh, reasoning of Paul's objectors, the, the kind of the logic that leads him to saying that we sin, that good might result. And our last point is that no Christian, no true believer, will ever look for arguments to sin. No true believer will look for excuses to sin, but will instead produce fruit. These, um, these last uh, verses in the section uh, from 5 to 8, uh, they're, they're not really uh, objections uh, to the Jews' advantages being erased, they're really self-serving uh, and log logic-warping arguments uh, to sin, to have latitude to do what you please. Three of them, and they're rather pathetic, but again, it seems that Paul was encountering these, and so Paul deals with them, and it's remarkable that he deals with them. Uh, they're based on the idea that God is able to turn good out of bad things, which is true. God is able to, to take what is bad and bring a good result. Lots of different kinds of ways. Uh, so, a, a city is flattened by bombs in a war. Dresden in the Second World War, flattened by Allied bombing. And when that happens, uh, maybe a lot of slums are knocked down in the process, and there's a an urban renewal project comes and results in a much prettier city after the bombing. Good results from 
bad. Uh, the Highland clearances. Uh, terrible cruelty. People evicted from their homes, left the crowded Highlands, and in America, many of them uh, prosper and do well. Good that came out of evil. And Paul's objector argues that if, as Paul says, God remains faithful, even when we're unfaithful, then surely, he says, that human unfaithfulness uh, will, will show up God's faithfulness. You know, like a, a diamond is shown to be uh, so beautiful when it's against a black, a dark background. Well, our unfaithfulness is magnifying God's faithfulness. Uh, therefore, if that's the case, and we've got to be patient with the guy, it's very difficult to get our heads around the way he's thinking, but he's saying if that's the case, then how can God judge? Because uh, evil is producing good. Uh, our unfaithfulness is magnifying God's faithfulness, so uh, surely God isn't right to judge. And Paul responds here, but he responds maybe not in the way we'd expect. What he says is, it is an indisputable fact that there is a judgment. God will judge the world, and therefore your argument does not hold. God is judge. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Paul is taking it as a given that God will judge the world. He is not explaining why that is the case. He's not making an argument for that being the case. He's simply saying that is uh, a given, and therefore the argument does not hold. And then uh, the argument becomes even more bizarre. Uh, if sinning increases God's glory, the logical conclusion is, let us do evil that good may result. And Paul says at this point, this is what some of his enemies were saying that he was teaching, and his response is cutting. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, you might think, well, who on earth would make that kind of argument? Who would argue that we should sin in order that good may result? But actually, when you do think about it a little bit more, Christians sometimes do that, or people claiming to be Christians uh, do that. Someone might claim, uh, hypothetically, uh, it's, it's good to go out with the boys and get a little bit drunk now and again because it shows you that it shows them that you're normal and when you have a chance to give some Christian book well they're going to take it from you because they know you're normal you're not odd you know this line of thinking that the Christian always has to show he's just like everybody else Someone else justifies it, an outburst of swearing that by saying it helped to, to clear out his anger. Or you have somebody uh, who justifies uh, going out with non-Christian boys on the basis that she once went out with a boy who had gone on to become a Christian. It was wrong, but good resulted. So modern-day uh, Christians are not immune from the, the pragmatism in the world around us. 
people want to see what the result is. And very often they're not too concerned about the method of arriving at the result. The end justifies the means, as it were. And then throw into the equation the fact that people are also, as we were saying this morning, they're very averse to, to the law of God, to the commandments of God. The one thing that they will uh, turn their noses up against is anything that they, they can claim smacks of, of legalism. Law, God's law, you don't want to be a Pharisee. And the most stupendous blunder any man or woman can make is to think that they could gain anything by sinning. To justify going against the law of God in any way, for any perceived benefit. To think that God would ever be glorified by a route which involved us going against his revealed will. It's folly, isn't it? But that's what people were thinking in Paul's day, and it's what people do, alarmingly, allow themselves to think today sometimes also. Paul's reminding us here of God's grace and his promises and his faithfulness and his ability to overrule our sin in mercy and in judgment and to his glory. Paul saying none of that can excuse sin. And if you're a Christian, you want to have nothing to do with that train of thought either because God has called us to holiness. We are saved through faith in Christ alone. The faith that saves us never remains alone. Always issues in good works. And so we pursue holiness with all our hearts, grateful for the word that the Lord has given, submitting ourselves to its correction and trembling at the approach of sin rather than looking at it as an excuse and submitting ourselves to God's correction and comfort that we might produce the good works of obedience that always blossom where there is true faith. May God bless to us uh, his holy word. Amen.